Let's read Romans 15. Can I have someone read verses 14 through 21 and then someone read verses 22 through 33? Amen. Starting in 14, of course, we're going to see that Paul wants to in, encourage the church of Rome. But I gave you uh, just a, a map, if you've never been to the book of maps. It's not inspired of God, but it's very helpful to understand your Bible. But I printed this off for you, and it was going to be in color, but our color copies are a little more expensive than our black and white ones, so I wanted to save money because I'm a cheapskate. So anyway, you get in black and white, but you'll kind of see, if you ever wonder about Paul's missionary journeys and and if you're reading your Bible and you see all these different places, just understand countries kind of morph. Sometimes what we call Spain now might have been called something different. Uh, they expand and contrast. There's some meme that went around like two years ago on social media where it showed all the different countries coming together, going apart. And, uh, you know, so countries, countries morph, countries change. We see that throughout Scripture that God raises up nations and brings them down. And sometimes it's helpful to understand how Paul did his missionary journeys. 
He always started in Jerusalem. He makes a big loop, a real small loop around the Aegean Sea. Um, and then he makes a bigger loop. And then his third missionary journey makes a bigger loop. And then the fourth missionary journey, they don't really call it a missionary journey because he was trying to actually go to Rome and eventually go to Spain. He eventually dies in that trip. But that's just to help you understand. People go, oh, Paul's missionary journeys. What does that mean? Well, he just basically went in a big circle. That was the known world of the day. And he went to all these different cities preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, and he always made his way back to Jerusalem. Then he makes a bigger loop, and then he makes a bigger loop. It's not really rocket science, and people try to make it difficult sometimes. It's not. That, that, that's just free. Two. Yes. Why make a big loop? Well, you had to have money. <laughs> you always had to come back and get some more money. That's, that's the practical reason. And you're going to see this come out that he's going to need support. But that's jumping ahead. Is that what you were looking for? Do you want to tell us why that? Jerusalem, right? So he started and finishing his, you know, his mission in Jerusalem. Right? And then he goes to Rome. And then he goes to Spain. And then he That's very good. Yes. Yes. It's very good. That was all free, too. Two, what are the requirements from the apostle to be someone who counsels? And we get this out of 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You're able to. What is the requirements that Paul gives for you to be able to counsel or instruct one another? Yes, Calvin here has a very long quote, basically dealing with your, your wisdom and, and you're full of the Spirit. You can't just have head knowledge, but you also have to live it out, to be full of the Spirit, someone who loves. You just have head knowledge of theology and you're just pouring on someone without love, it doesn't matter. And this is something that Paul constantly brings out. But you also can't counsel somebody if you just love them and you have no head knowledge. What are you going to tell them? Nothing. Just give them a hug, which is sometimes good. People need hugs. It's great. There's a word here, and this is where nuthetic counseling comes in. And, and, and oftentimes at Presbyterian meetings, they may ask a candidate, what is your view of nuthetic counseling? Some people are so diehard on nuthetic counseling that... That's the only counseling that can take place. And that word comes from uh, nutheto, which means to instruct. That nuthetic, which basically means biblical counseling, because 
You must be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. There are people who are diehard Nuthetic. You see the word there, Nuthetin? No, no, that's okay. So, page four. Just so you know, if you ever hear the word Nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling, or there's a lot of different terms that are coined, it all comes from Romans 15, 14, to instruct one another. I am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Paul believed that if you were full of the Spirit and that you knew the Word and that you loved, that you were competent enough to counsel and instruct someone. Now that word, nuthetin, nuthetic counsel, where it comes from, the word instruct, to admonish, warn, counsel, exhort, to put to mind, caution, to reprove gently. I don't think the people in churches understand how much power the Holy Spirit has given you and wisdom he has given you. Oftentimes we think, well, I don't know if I can do that. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit and you have wisdom and you know the word, you can. No, I do have a rule. D, above my pay grade rule. Oftentimes, there are things that are above your pay grade. And I don't mean that, and, and, and if I said that around a bunch of biblical counselors, some even our presbytery, they would be very mad at me right now. But there's a reason that people are gifted in different areas. We have people who are gifted counselors. They know how to slice up things differently than others. They're really good at it. So you have to have the wisdom enough to say what is above my pay grade and what is, what is not. I will say, though, you have to trust in the Holy Spirit, and you can instruct. Um, I believe that we all are competent if we have the Holy Spirit and we're studying the Scriptures and we know the truth. But there are some that are above your pay grade, and that, that could get you in a little trouble. I'm not going to give you what is and what isn't. Pastor David will do that later. Yes. Yeah, uh, there are some believe that, you know, bad counseling is better than no counseling. I don't know if that's true. But I do believe that if you're a Christian, you can at least tell the person the truth, hug them, love them, bake them cakes bake them food, and, and walk with them through whatever they need to be walked through with. But yeah, it, it, has, it has ruined a lot of people. Bad counseling has bad. And this is why when we give counsel to people, we must be very clear, one, not to say, God told me to say this. Hey, how do you know God told you to say that? Do you have a word from the Lord? I don't think you do. We have to be very careful, but at the same time, we have to be careful also not to say anything. So we have, this is the reason we walk in the Spirit. This is the reason we renew our minds. Paul is preparing the entire church of Rome as he started in chapter 1 to teach them the gospel, to teach them about the Spirit. He starts in chapter 12 about renewing the mind, and now because your mind is renewed, now he tells us to put to practice that which the Lord has changed in your heart and which you have put in your mind. Paul does not want us to be ignorant Christians where we don't learn. We love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, right? 
our mind, but our strength. If you're not learning, you have nothing to instruct people with. But if you're learning everything and don't love people, it means nothing. So both of them work hand in hand. What benefits have you seen because of counseling? Are there any benefits of instructing people sitting down as a Christian brother or sister in Christ? I'm not mistaken, women are commanded to do this with younger women in Scripture. In Titus, that is the responsibility that women are called to do. That's not an option for you. It says it in Scripture. Larry. Amen. Let's go to the three, ministry of Paul. Reverend David Sinners is traveling. He will be traveling soon. The session of the church approves a minister from another church to come to fill the pulpit. He asked us to turn to John 3.16 and starts preaching from this passage. What do you do? Ugh, knowing you just heard this sermon preached a year ago from Pastor David. He just preached John 3 and now we have to hear it again. What are you going to do when it happens? Rejoice in the Lord. It's very possible. I wanted just to point out that Paul, in verse 15, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, which means I've already wrote these things to you. Sometimes when preachers preach, you've already heard the sermon a thousand times. Mr. Harry Broadman, have you heard every book of the Bible preached already? Not all the way? But you've heard Jeremiah a few times, haven't you? <laughs> and he has to sit through the pain and agony of hearing me preach it again. It's a good thing to be reminded. Sometimes preachers, but it's good to be reminded. And, and I think that's something we see in Scripture here. We see it definitely in Peter's letters. Oftentimes, preachers are reminding you. You don't always get new information. But you're reminded once again of many things. I think that was important enough to pull out because that's often what the ministry of preaching is. Oftentimes, preaching isn't giving you new information. It's reminding you of what should be front and center in your life or reminding you what you should really be passionate about. Discussion question, what made Paul qualified to be a missionary to the Gentiles? God sent him. So pragmatically speaking, if God was going to choose someone to go to the Gentiles, would he have chosen Paul? I don't know. We, could, we can make a case either way. Maybe it'd be great to get another Gentile person, but how was someone going to know the Jewish Bible as well as Paul did? But Paul seems to know the Jewish Bible by heart. He's confronted by Jesus after trying to kill him, right? Kill all the followers of Christ. He's literally persecuting Christ. God calls him and then says, hey, go be a missionary to the Gentiles. And that's what qualified Paul. And one of the things Paul says is, I have this ministry as a priest so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
because of time, I want to answer this. What does the offering of the Gentiles mean? He is offering them up to Christ as his ministry to him. So he's, he's not saying, I am a priest. He's using that as an analogy. He uses a lot of metaphors. Paul is a metaphor-heavy preacher. As the priest would make the sacrifices and God would smell the aroma like barbecue. Like, ooh, that smells great, right? God would smell the aroma. He says, as I'm serving the Gentiles and as they're coming to the Lord and they're growing, I'm presenting them to Christ. Not because I'm proud as an arrogant person. Why? Because I want God to be blessed. This brings us to Roman numeral four. I don't know if you've ever heard this album, 1964. Anybody heard I'm the Greatest by Cassius Clay? It's a really great album. It's a comedy album. I don't know if you know that he did that, but he's been known to say, I'm the greatest. It was often he did that as a joke at first, and then it just kept on, and he possibly was the greatest ever boxer. But if you go to page five, Paul and Ali have nothing in common. Ali was joking that he was the greatest, and he might have been the greatest boxer. But when Paul says that I boast and I'm proud in verse 17 of my work for God, He's not saying that I did this. What he's saying is, I am proud to say, and proud may not be the word, it's not used as it is today. What he is saying is, I get to bring glory to God. I pride myself or I am happy and glory in God that what God is doing through me. He's not making a claim that I have done this. If you read this in context, it is Christ that has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. He's like, I'm not apologizing that God has used me. As a matter of fact, I've given my life for this very purpose. And he's looking back at his life of ministry, and he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of what the Lord has done through his life. And may God grant us that mercy to look back when we're older and go, you know what? I did that for the Lord, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to apologize for it. As a matter of fact, I'm presenting them. If you're in a Sunday school class teaching four or five-year-olds, and one day you see that four and five-year-old become 17, and they are 13, they make a profession of faith, they come to the Lord's table, you know what you do as a four or five-year-old teacher? You're like, that's right. I played a role in that. Because you do. You should be proud of that. You should be proud that some of your students have come forward to take the Lord's Supper and made a profession of faith. You played a role in that. Not because you're better than someone else, because God allowed you to do it, provided you the opportunity, you stepped through that. That's something to be proud of. You know, when, when I have students in my former youth ministry become pastors, and they're like, hey, Travis, could you do this? Or, or they get married to a Christian person. I'm like, man, I'm proud. They're, they're getting married. Look, you have children and they go off and do something. You're like, look, they're going off and doing something right. <laughs> this is the attitude that Paul is having here. Which brings us, discussion three. I don't know if I have time for this, but I'm going to bring it up because Paul brings it up. He says that as he's doing this gospel ministry and as Gentiles are coming to the Lord, he says in verse 18, For I will venture to speak nothing except what Christ has accomplished through me, through the Gentiles, to bring obedience to the word. Verse 19, what? By the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. 
just so you understand, Paul had like superpowers. I have no other way to say it. As some of you have the ministry of singing, like you have a gift of singing. Let's take Claire, for instance. She could choose to use her voice and go off and become a rock star. I don't know if rock music's cool anymore, but I'm, I'm old. Anyway, they, they become a rock star. That is God's gift still. She sings. She's using her gift wrongly. And you see that. How many musicians do you see are some of the greatest singers of all time? They have, we, what do we say? We have a gift. But they choose to use that gift wrongly. Pastor David could say, you know what? I'm taking my gifts and I'm going to the secular world. I'm going to make a lot of money being a, the greatest manager of all kind of things. Right? Because he can manage people. He's good at it. He's a leader. That's what kind of gift Paul had. It wasn't, Paul had like some type of miraculous gift that he could use. Now, I don't know how that works because you can't use them anymore. They're not existent. But you need to understand that when Paul preached and things happened, it authenticated his message. One of the reasons the Roman Catholic Church doesn't agree with the Protestant Reformation they said, where's the signs and wonders? Because anytime the church grows and there's like an outpouring of the Spirit, they said, where was the signs and wonders? If it's true. That's something they level against the Protestant church. The truth is, we don't have apostles anymore. And it seems that even the apostles, as they laid their hands on Stephen, who... Sinclair Ferguson does not believe he was a real deacon. He was a servant to the apostles. That's a whole other story. They'd superpowers. All I know is when God wants to authenticate his message, when there was no closed canon, he used signs and wonders. But if you look in the course of history, there wasn't much signs and wonders done compared to how much history there is. It's a very, very minuscule amount of signs and wonders that have taken place. It's not ordinary, not even close to being ordinary. God still does. People say, can God still do miracles? Yes, he can, he can heal people. He can use doctors. Um, that was a discussion that our small group had with R.C. Sproul. Not personally, but he had a book. That would be odd. Anyway, that would be a sign of wonder, wouldn't it? But we had this discussion, like, does, God still does miracles unless you, depending on how you define miracles, and everybody defines them differently. I think life is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. When God illuminates the passage, I could call that a miracle. But, but you know, no one is going to have power to speak something into existence. That is God's work, and God does not ordinarily do that any longer. The great ambition of Paul one of the things that we see in this passage that he has an ambition. Now remember, he wants to go to Rome. Man, I really want to go there, but there's something else I want to do more. This is something in your life that you live with every day. I want to do that, but I want to do that more. I hope you see that in this passage. I want to do that, but I want to do that more. 
Like those are the choices that we make in life. What will bring the maximum amount of glory to God? You have to choose those things. And though Paul wanted to go to Rome for the right reasons, he's like, there's something else that is burning inside of me that I must do, and that is bring the gospel to those who have never heard it. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that's an old-timey thing. That's an antiquated thought to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it. Well, I wanted to print you some things off about unreached people's groups, and I don't know if you know anything about unreached people groups. There's most of them. They call this the 1040 window because the longitude and latitude but most of them are comprised right there in uh, Central Asia and scattered throughout um, a lot of the islands. Unreached Peoples Group is a, is a true thing. There's missionaries and there's organizations that focus on reaching people who have never heard of gospel. There are, I want you to flip the page. The number four, page six. This is called Deaf and Unengaged Groups. Almost six, 648,000 people who have no Bible. And when we say people groups, these are ethnic people groups. They have their own language, their own culture, their own way of marriage, their own natural cultural dance. They are a culture in and of themselves. They speak a language that only they themselves speak. Dialect, you could say. All this is a list of unreached people groups. That means they have no gospel witness. None. If, if you don't understand that, you don't understand what God is trying to do. People talk about, well, once everyone hears that, not everyone has heard the gospel. We live in a nation, we are very blessed. People turn down the gospel here. Well, there's still nations that haven't even had a chance to hear it. That's the reason some of these organizations, this is Frontiers Missions, this organization. If you go to page 7, these are all the groups, the ethnic groups, over 2 million that have 2% or less. They consider 2%, and I don't know what your view is, they consider once 2% of the population is Christian, that they are reached. Well, think about that. 2%. And you're saying, well, that makes no sense. Well, ask a post-millennialist how many people have to be saved in their country to be, have the gospel reached. They'll say one. <laughs> if one person's there, the gospel's made it, right? So they're not as post-mill as some are. But, but they say 2% and, it's, and at least it has a gospel witness because their, their ministry is based upon what? We need to get the gospel to those who have never heard. So they focus on these. And if you've ever heard of New Transmissions or Wycliffe Bible translators, they go and they learn these languages that no one's ever heard. It takes them five to ten years to learn the language. Then they're having to learn Greek, and then they're having to translate the Greek into the language of the people. You look at these. Name after name after name after name. My question is, page eight, number five, is everyone called... To be an evangelist. Very true. See, see. 
Preachers oftentimes want to make their gifts so amazing and they want to propagate their gifts and hold you to the same standard. Well, if I told all of you, all of you need to learn to share the gospel, I think Michelle Shepard could say, Travis, you need to learn to bake a cake and learn to give it to somebody. What if that was my gift? I'd be telling all of you, if you don't bake cakes for people, you're not a Christian. Like, you need to start baking cakes. Of course it's easy to take what I'm good at and tell you to start doing it, right? Don't we do that often anyway? Aren't we always making our gifts so amazing and pushing them on everyone else? You need to be like me. Subconsciously, we don't even realize we do this half the time, but we do. Not everyone's called to be an evangelist. Not all of you are called to knock on doors. If you have that gift, you'll know if you have the gift. Someone will tell you, like, you should really be evangelist. You should start sharing Jesus with people. No one has to tell an evangelist you need to start sharing Jesus with people. They're like, you just can't help it. You're like, dude, I can't believe I just shared. You just do it naturally. No one has to go to the people in the church and say, you know what? You need to start writing cards. You're writing cards. That's what you're doing. You're passionate about it. Whatever you're passionate about, more than likely, that's going to be your gift. You don't have to be an evangelist. Now, you do have to be faithful when God opens doors, right? As John Carr likes to say when he says, share the gospel, always use words when necessary, right? He uses that a lot. Now, he doesn't like it. He, he mentioned that. But you have to use words sometimes. If you have a neighbor and you say, well, you know, I'm not called to evangelism. They're sitting right there crying, having a, having a crisis. Are you going to help them or not? Well, I can't help you. That's not my job. No, it's your job because God placed them in front of you. You know, a person had a need, you know, let someone else know. We do what the Lord has opened the door for us. But not everyone's called to be an evangelist. But to the point, is everyone called to world's mission work? Yes. Prayer is one. We need to be praying for our missionaries. You'll see this in scripture. I need your prayer. We see it clearly with Epaphroditus in Philippians. Epaphroditus is not a missionary. You know what he did when he saw Paul? He brought him some food and some books and gave him a hug. When we go visit missionaries, often we just give them hugs and say, listen here, what can we do to help you? Why? And I'm thankful you live there. But we need to be involved. We need to be praying. You need to be thinking about unreached people groups. You need to be thinking about nations that are going through war and turmoil because our saints are suffering around the world. This is what Paul's talking about. And he goes on, and I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to summarize the rest of it. I'm, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm taking this money to Jerusalem. I want you to think about this. He's got a bunch of Gentiles. He's collecting money for people who are hurting that are Jews in Jerusalem. That doesn't happen. This is a world in Rome that they lived in. Rome, uh, Roman culture uh, permeated everything to the point where everything was broken up into sects and subsects, and, and you, had, uh, you had slaves and you had slave owners, you had people who were poor, and it was almost a, a caste system. You had the wealthy. You didn't hang out with one another. You didn't fraternize. But Jesus Christ comes, and Paul is teaching the Gentiles 
it doesn't matter. You love them like they're your brother and sister in Christ because Jesus Christ is more important. So he's taken money back to Jerusalem. Gentiles given money to help those in Jerusalem who are Jews. And if you've read anything in Scripture, you can feel the tension in the letter of Romans. You can feel the tension in the book of Acts. And the only answer is Christ. There is no other answer. And you have to look at Christ and you have to ask yourself, would I be like the Gentile church? I pray and hope you would confess that sin and be like the Gentile church. They're one in Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. This is a big thing in this day, that a Gentile church would be giving money to the Jews. Page 9. What does Paul mean by being helped on his journey? By the way, where is he trying to go ultimately? Does anybody know? Spain. Some say it's Albania. Where this is your picture of Spain here. That's the flag. We have a lot of Spanish speakers in here. You could say that's your mother tongue. What does Paul mean by being helped on the journey in verse 24? He needs prayer and money. Now, uh, it's debated on what he really needed. People who were missions pastor, former ones like me, would say, oh, it's definitely money, right? Because you're always asking, hey, people need money. Uh, missionaries oftentimes need help. Something you don't understand is as the dollar gets devalued, so does the pricing of our missionaries' paycheck, right? This affects things. Uh, oftentimes we, we don't understand how this works. Like, you know, uh, there's a lot they're doing. Uh, I mean, I used to sit there with stacks of missionary letters. Hey, our van broke down. Uh, you know, we're going to have to fly back to the States because my daughter needs surgery. And I'm thinking, well, you just can't have surgery there? I'm like, no. <laughs> they're not going to have surgery there. These are th real things, and the church needs the support. And Paul needs financial help. And I'm not, this is not me saying you need to give more. You're a very giving church. But we always need to be thinking what part of our budget goes to our missions? How can we love our missionaries more? And oftentimes we can just pray. But prayer is not arbitrary. And it's not nothing. They need it. They feel it. Paul feels the prayers and needs the prayers of the saints. Last thing as we close, because it's 1012. This is interesting because Paul speaks about prayer. He says, I need prayer for the unbelievers in Judea. Because when he gets there, they want to kill him. What did Jesus say about the prophets? No prophet is loved in his hometown. He levels the charge against the Jews. You have killed the prophets. You killed the prophets. As a matter of fact, they would make basically this big and huge big to-do. And they would build this catacomb. And they would have all these ceremonies to talk about how great this prophet was. And Jesus is like, 
you killed him. And now you've made a spectacle of how great he was? You killed him. If you sign up to be a prophet, they're going to kill you. Have you read any of the prophets? They were not treated well. They were killed because they spoke the word of God. Who wants to sign up to be a prophet? <laughs> Let's pass the sign around. And there's people today calling themselves prophets. The problem is nobody wants to kill them anymore. No one. My encouragement to you is, go back and read this. It was too much to cover. I'm not very good at covering a big section. But Paul wants the people to think about ministry to foreign people. What role are you playing right now? What role can you play? We have three missionaries, possibly one soon. We're praying. Maybe write them letters. I don't know what you can do. Uh, you can come see me and I can give you some ideas. Um, but you need to be letting your kids and children know these are our missionaries. We pray for them. We love them because God is working. And it kind of gets you out of your bubble to think that the world revolves around you. It's very helpful because it doesn't. So with that said, does anyone have any questions? This is 10.15 and I've used all my time.